0: Hi, this is not Arnold, but you should still listen to the 430 Movie podcast at 430movie.com. It's really fun. You'll like it. Boogie down with reformed double girl, Chase Masterson, as she takes you inside Discovery every week on the all-new Star Trek podcast, Disco Nights. From the producers of Inglorious Treksperts, wherever you listen to the 430 Movie. And keep looking at the stars. <music> ¶¶ Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Hey, good to see you, Darren. Good to see you, Mark.
1: On an all new episode
0: of. <laughs> Here we are again, on an all new Inglorious Trexperts. And today's episode. <laughs>
1: Well, today's episode is... Noted and Logged, the music <laughs> of Star Trek.
0: I see what you did there. That's
1: yeah, was a little pun there, a little pun. And we are joined once again by some of our, um, our, our recurring special guests. I, I, I call them the Richard Dawson and Charles Nelson. You remember on the match game how uh, you had certain guests that were there every week? You know, and sometimes they'd be shooting a movie and they'd be gone, but then they'd be back and you were really, like really happy to see them again.
0: I like to think of myself as Fanny Flagg.
1: Well, we don't have Fanny, but we do have Robert Meyer Burnett. Welcome back.
2: It's good to be here. I'd like to be Charles Nelson Riley, if I could.
1: From Lidsville. Yes. So you are. Excellent. And uh, then we uh, welcome back uh, Ashley E. Miller. Uh,
3: Dibs on Paul Lind.
0: Oh, that's a good one. Center Square. Well, he was never on the match game. He was on Hollywood Squares. He was was the center square. But he wasn't always
3: the center
1: square. No. No. So there you go. So it's a good analogy. (laughs) <laughs> okay yes. and uh uh we have uh, as our special guest joining us uh the former editor of Film Score Monthly he's a writer a director um and a very acclaimed um Uh, 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 person who's written liner notes for hundreds, if not thousands, of soundtrack albums. He's produced some of the great movie soundtracks uh, uh, released in the last couple of decades, and he is an expert on Star Trek and John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith, and uh, just a, a real treat to have him here today, Mr. Lucas Kendall.
4: Hi there. Thank you.
1: So, uh, Lucas, you know, um, you founded, uh, you know, the the way I met you, if you recall. I remember well. Was um, you were writing about music for Cinefantastic. Thanks to you. Is that right?
4: Or something. I think I... um,
1: (laughs) I'll take the compliment.
4: I think I wrote Fred a letter or called him and said, well, you know, you have these great Star Trek wrap-up articles, but there's never an article about the music.
1: Right. And then you and started then writing. It about. was like,
4: well, do you want to do it? And I was like, OK. And I was like 16 or 17.
1: Yeah. And I was so happy to see the music um, highlighted finally because there, there hadn't been much music attention paid to the music of Star Trek. I know Randall Larson had a, uh, a, a, a magazine called Cinema Score, but I think it was gone by the time that Star Trek was back. And then, uh, of course, you started FilmScore Monthly.
4: I did. <clears throat> it was a lonely childhood. Ah, (laughs) That
1: seems to be a recurring theme with our guests. (laughs) A lot of wedgies. Uh, (laughs) Here on the Star Trek podcast. Um, But um, uh, what's really interesting is I think one of the reasons that I sort of got my break at Fantastic was I was writing about the turmoil and the craziness that was happening in the writer's room. But uh, I think that, you know, interestingly, uh, some of that was also happening uh, with the composers and the music of next year.
4: There was. Yeah, it was a very peculiar thing as a fan to experience because for, you know, for the history of Star Trek, the music had always been, there'd been very clear melodies and it always had a lot of sort of dramatic and cinematic scope to it. And then in the, around the fourth or fifth year of, of the next generation, the music got very muted and um, there, there were like no more tunes. And as a fan, it was very confusing because I thought, what's wrong with these composers? They they don't know how to write tunes anymore. And it, it didn't occur to me that the producers had been instructing them not to do that because they felt that the music needed to be more sophisticated because they were trying to tell more sophisticated stories and they thought that having melodies was going to be not sophisticated.
1: Well, let me ask you. I mean, a lot of people said this sort of came down from Rick Berman, but it seems as though uh, post-supervisor producer Peter Lordson was really at the heart of sort of neutering Uh, the composers. No, it came
4: from Rick and then it was enforced by... Peter, and also Wendy Noose, mm-hmm. and I, I was there. I would go to a scoring session because after I'd met some of these folks and they would invite me, and I went to the scoring session for Cause and Effect, and I saw it happen where where Dennis McCarthy would record a cue, and then like on the talk back from the booth, Wendy would say, uh, you know, that was a little big at the ends, and he goes, Okay, we'll do it again. And they would just, you know, he would, what what was previously a very large chord to end the cue would be very soft. And they just kind of did these little tinkerings with it because you really can't change it all that much at that point. It was this, these were the old days when they were writing pencil and paper and then it would be orchestrated. So the first time the producers were hearing it would be on the stage, but they got very, um, uh, sort of very hardcore about not letting the composers use percussion, not letting them have recurring themes, not letting them use like woodwinds and harps. And uh, I thought it was very misguided, but I also understood where they were coming from, especially as I've gotten older because, and I remember you for the first CFQ sidebar. I did. You asked Rick Berman, and then gave me his quotes to put in my sidebar. Mm. And Rick Berman's quote was like, you know, in the old days when Kirk was chasing somebody and the bad guy came around the rock, the music would go da da. And you know, this is thirty years later, and we don't want the music to go da da because it's corny, and so we have to have a more sophisticated approach. And and uh, but they, I think they threw the baby out with the bathwater. I really do.
1: So when you're listening to music from Star Trek, what are you listening to, Rob Burnett?
2: I am listening to the battle music when the Klingons are chasing after the Enterprise in a Land of Troyes from the third season. Dun 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 dun. Great, great, great music. I don't listen to the Next Generation music except maybe some of the stuff that Lucas put out in the Ron Jones project. He did an excellent compilation of all of Ron Jones's music. Next Generation. And I, I believe, I think, that he wrote the greatest piece of music for Next Generation written, which was the Klingon tea ceremony music. That, which is
4: not in the show.
2: It's not in the show. Right. And it's. I used it a lot in our Blu-ray documentaries because I thought it was one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written for Star Trek.
4: Well, let me just explain so that people know like who who I am. I, I So I had this magazine as a fanzine. It was before the Internet, and I loved the music for movies, so I created this little fanzine. And then I went to college, and I did it from college. And then after I graduated, I moved to Los Angeles, and I kept doing it, and it became more professional. And then I started my own record label, and I had a CD label where we would do CDs of Star Trek music, amongst many other classic titles. And so in my travels, I've I've worked on, all, I think almost all, if not all, of the recent expanded collector's edition soundtrack albums for the movies and we've done the box set for the old show and we've done some box sets for the more recent shows and a lot of odds and ends albums. We did an album for the 50th anniversary that had the animated Star Trek music. So I've, you know, I've I've, I've had a good time. It was, it's been...
1: You've had a long association with Star yeah, Trek Yeah, and it's, uh, soundtracks. you know, what
4: I always try to try to explain to people about the music is that like Star Trek, all the things that we take from it, so many of them you can take out of the show and, for example, the toys and the costumes and the, and the props and, and the blueprints and the ships and all the artwork. And, and it's very visual and, 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 you know, it's very tangible. You can make a book out of it. And the music is sort of the only thing, the only creative aspect of it that goes in the complete opposite direction because it's not visual. It happens in time. You can't put it in a book. So you can only listen to it. And it's not specific the way that the uniforms and the props make the world specific. It's not about the world except that it's about the um, the storytelling. It's about the emotions. It's a, And it's about the cultural relationships of the characters and of the stories. And so it's 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 really its own thing. And it's very hard to, to talk about it um, if you're not well schooled in it, which fortunately I am from just decades. Wait,
2: but. No, 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 no. Let, let me just stop you right there. My whole life, I wanted to get soundtrack music from the original series. And there was very little of, of it available. Uh, Neil Norman's company put out the Cage soundtrack. Yep. Uh, we had Verez Saraband uh, put out two uh, pieces. Well, and two, you're re- forgetting re- also re- Southern recorded. Cross. Uh, right, and Southern Cross did This Side of Paradise and things like that. My whole life, all I ever wanted was the music to the original series. <laughs> You have it and Lucas it was 2012
4: it was and I I picked it up in my Subaru 2012 had my car.
2: great story but 2012 they put out a box set of all of the music from the original series and I've never had an experience uh, when I started listening to some of that stuff including that battle music from the third season of Star Trek it was like it, it, it the weird sense memories that came over me when I was listening to that film, I, uh, music I was taken back to when I was five years old. I mean, I've never heard music that affected me as much as being able to, not just, not just the memories of the episodes and the scenes that all that music came from, but the way it reminded me of what I felt like when I was seven, what I felt like when I was 10, 15, 20. That music is so indelible and it's so unforgettable, that original series music. I, I can't even begin to describe. And when they released that music, they had a moment at the Egyptian theater. It Was was it Fred Steiner? No, we had yeah, Gerald, Gerald Freed. Freed. G- yeah. Gerald Freed. So Gerald, great. Gerald Freed came down and played some of it live. From Shirley. Yeah, on his oboe. And and uh, it was incredible. It was incredible. So it it, it is specific to Star Trek, and it, it is something that you can't remove away from it, but you could still listen to it without knowing what the episode. That was are. a really great night that... that um, the La La Land Records guys put on
1: because they showed two episodes. It was uh, and and then Gerald Fried played live and he played a suite with the uh, featuring uh, the Shore Leaf music and it was just a really special evening, a really great celebration of Star Trek and seeing the episodes on the big screen and how great they looked. Uh, it was at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood. It was it was really terrific, and then to have that that box set, as you say, Rob, was just I mean, and how many it's discs? It's a twelve. 50, it's fifteen. 15 yeah, and I remember. I I mean, I hadn't actually pulled out a CD in ages. I was listening to stuff digitally. Um, you know, I digitize it and then listen to it. I actually put the CDs on and just for hours, just inhaled it, and it was uh, it was so exciting because it takes us back to the beginning which was a very delicate time as Rob (laughs) mentions um, because the first time you had Star Trek on uh, vinyl was Power Records
0: Space the final frontier these are the continuing voyages of the Starship Enterprise Far out in space a mysterious giant cloud traveled silently toward a distant planet Earth on its journey it passed three klingon warships on patrol the klingon captain hailed the cloud you are violating klingon territory respond or be destroyed receiving no reply the ships fired but the cloud easily deflected the bolts in return it fired a tremendous flash of energy at the ships instantly disintegrating them
1: That's correct, yeah. Um, Which were these audio dramas accompanied by a comic book. Um, Neil Adams Continuity Studios did the art, and then they had um, these actors recording original adventures and adaptations of the movies.
0: Yeah, and they were something from a different reality, however. They were, you know, it said Star Trek, and it has the same character. It was sort of like our first taste of the J.J. movies. It it was kind of like Star Trek, and it, it it has Captain Kirk in it, and it has this guy that says he's Spock. Um, but it was really weird. This, the stories are okay, you know, they're fine. I mean, they, you know, they fit into ten minutes. So you know, it's it's very interesting, uh, and and sort of stock music overlaid. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But and at the time, that was all at we the had. time. No, it, it was. <laughs> I, I i but what a difference a huge not having fan the music of kind made. of stuff, but absolutely, and that's also one of the interesting things that happens with the animated uh series. <laughs> You have everything exactly the same except the music, and it creates such a different realm that you're uh, taking in that it's, uh, it's astonishing how different you react to it than mm-hmm. the live action.
4: Well, in the old days and in, in, in the 60s, they would use uh, libraries, so they would typically have a composer write an original score for like the first eight or nine episodes, and then they hit a union quota where the union would allow them to reuse those scores. So they'd just be cheap. They'd save a lot of money. Tracking. They'd track it. So you'd hear the same pieces of music sliced and diced by the music editors, but it made it very familiar. And so that's why when we hear those tracks now, it's not just, um, I mean, it really is. It's like the smell of your, your mom's attic or something. It just takes you way back. It's great.
0: And it's, you know, it's so ingrained. I mean, we we would watch the episodes over and over again. And some of us, you know, as we talked about before, we tape recorded the episodes and listened to them ad nauseum. Um, And all that stuff imprinted itself on our brains. And uh, it's it it is not only, as Rob said, a a remembrance of the episodes. It's a remembrance of our life. (laughs)
3: in those moments. And what you just said I, inspired something I have I have never thought about Star Trek before in my life, which is, just as a thought experiment, which is, how does Star Trek the motion picture feel different with the James Horner score? How does Star Trek Jerry Goldsmith Jerry yeah, yeah. that? that would be really different. Well...
0: Oh, are you saying no, how would it be with yes, the James Horner score? Yes, movie? exactly. Oh,
3: yeah. And vice versa. How yeah. would Star Trek 2 be with the Jerry Goldsmith? You know, it just it, it's it's interesting because they exist in these completely different. Well, I'll give you worlds. another thought experiment. Okay. Um, what if the Star Trek IV score never happened? Oh, oh I like only. that. <laughs> I mean, Sorry. yeah, it sounds like Christmas music. Come on, but, dude, uh, the Yellow Jackets. Uh, yeah,
4: but you know, it's not just that. It's because every movie has its own tone. I mean, uh, you couldn't in Star Trek VI. There's like a laugh line where where uh, McCoy, where they're f- doing that torpedo thing at the end, and he says, "I got it, Jim. Lock and load." Like, that line could not be in Star Trek II or Star Trek motion picture because the tone of the movie is completely different. So even just every aspect, when you think about it, every aspect of the movie from, uh, you know, every from film to film is different. So the scores are different. I think Michael Giacchino said that, like, when he was going to do the 2009 movie, he started out by just putting up those themes from the old movies against the picture. And Mm -hmm. just none of them, none of them stuck. And if you look at his theme, it's all—it's kind of like half a theme, because there's just something about the way movies are made now that they can't tolerate longer pieces of music.
1: Well, I, it's funny you mentioned Star Trek: The Motion Picture, Ashley, because, you know, yeah, we had—we t- talked on a previous episode about the Inside Star Trek LP, which was the spoken word Gene Roddenberry album. Um, but other than that, in Power Records. There hadn't been any Star Trek music released on vinyl because the um, GMP release of The Cage didn't come until many years later. Yeah. So Star Trek The Motion Picture came out as a, uh, an of a LP, and it was a revelation. I mean, not only is that one of the great movie scores of all time, but um, it was one of the first pieces, it was the first Star Trek music to actually be commercially released. <laughs> ¶¶ How many times did you listen to that?
0: I, I ruined two albums <laughs> by just gouging out the you know the vinyl on them. So did you play listening. them, or were you were just gouging it out? No, just listening to them oh, so okay. much, Ashley. It was a, a figure speech. It's oh. not really what happened, but I listened to them an awful lot. We don't have idioms. Um, but you know don't. what I think,
2: Mark? What was really interesting about Goldsmith's music is like the music of the original series, Goldsmith's music was so much a part of of the images of Star Trek the Motion Picture that it became the same way that as a kid I could I could I could hum the themes from Amok Time or the Doomsday Machine or something like that but when Kirk first sees the Enterprise in in Star Trek the Motion Picture that piece of music to me became what it was like to look at the Enterprise. Like Mm -hmm. I would build that model kit that Christmas, the model kit of the Enterprise came out and I was, you know, playing that record and building my refit Enterprise model. And, and as I played with it, that music just, I, I would hold that model and spin it around and I would hear that music in my head. It was so Goldsmith's score was so unbelievably evocative of everything that happened in the movie, the same way the original, whether it was uh, Gerald Fried or or Fred Steiner or Saul Kaplan, any of the music from the original series became so... Uh, sort of ingrained in my mind, the the Friday's Child music when they're marching, you know, they're going into the mountain wa- mountains while they're being chased by yeah. the Capellans. It's yeah. you know that dun 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 dun. And How that could elevate
1: anything really mediocre into something really it, much better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And
2: the and the mo- and there's no there's no it, it did not surprise me seeing Star Trek: The Next Generation for the first time and hearing the motion picture theme again. It felt right
1: it's amazing how that has become the theme for Star Trek, and I want to ask Darren and Lucas to talk a little bit about because of course we all talk about Star Trek the motion Picture being again the sort of iconic Star Trek score and one of the great movie scores of all time, but Jerry Goldsmith wrote that under very, very trying and difficult circumstances
0: yeah I mean, he he talks about uh, he talks about it in interviews that we put on the uh, director's edition uh, DVD um, that his first attempt at the th- at themes for the film uh were not uh, met with approval uh he he did probably three or four tracks uh that uh, got recorded and uh and evaluated you know a few months into the uh, post production process and robert wise heard them and, and he said this is this is not there. I, I I keep thinking of sailing ships and things like that. And that's not really the tone I'm looking for. Or no, he didn't say sailing ships. He said Conestoga wagons. Mm. Um and and he said, I, I there's no theme. And Goldsmith sort of, you know, took a step back and said, Um Huh. I guess. Yeah. I guess I haven't really established a theme. He almost has it in these tracks. You can hear them on the uh, miraculous three-disc release of the score from La, La Land. From Lala La Land. Um, but these uh, proto tracks have almost gotten there. It's it's such a, a fascinating way to hear the process that he went through in sort of uh, pulling the, you know, main theme that we all know now um, out from from these ideas that he had. And, you know, the orchestration is all there. The lushness of it is there. But the central idea wasn't quite solidified.
4: Do you want the Jerry Goldsmith story that has never been told about? Very quickly. About Star Trek V, when he was starting Star Trek V, this came from somebody who was one of his students, I think, at USC. And they're like, why are you doing another Star Trek movie? And he was, and Jerry was telling them a little about it. And all I heard was that someone asked about working with Shatner and Jerry said, the man's an idiot. <laughs> Is that, are we not allowed to say that? You, you can say <laughs> right, it. We'll Rob say and I that. had a I very mean, different experience, yeah. but. <laughs> uh, I mean, Jerry, I don't know. He was, um, Jerry was very he, he specific be, yeah.
0: with uh, with his dealings with people. And he was he, a curmudgeon.
4: He was, he was very much a curmudgeon. He was, and, and he, he was at a, a point gift, in his career. He was a gifted guy. And and, uh, but, uh, yeah, he was, he didn't like me much either. He almost threw me out of the scoring session to LA Confidential.
1: Why? Because you gave him a bad review for something? Yeah, because
4: I mean, I was a snot nosed kid. And, like, he, you know, when I was a little kid, he used to write, like, Planet of the Apes and, and the Metheso Waltz and all these awesome, like, alien, and these totally cool, cool scores. And then, You know, he he got old and he was writing like powder and it was all drippy and lame. And so we'd like in Film Score Monthly give him these lame say like why'd he get so lame, Mm -hmm. and like not knowing that his kid Joel would uh, who like had a pathology about fucking with people. Sorry, but he would um, he would uh, like fax. 90s facts all the bad reviews to jerry so even though jerry didn't want to see film score monthly joel would like needle him with all these things so we would you know we, like i can't remember which what the, you know jerry got old and he got dry and then he wanted to be john barry when it wasn't who he was it's was a very weird i don't know what can you do yeah but even late <laughs> he late did he, career, was a big, he's he was a huge alcoholic
1: remarkable
4: i can say this he's dead now i mean it doesn't matter Sorry.
1: Very but later in his career, he did still he was still doing some remarkable movie scores.
4: Yeah. I mean, the last really great one's basic instinct, though. The last 10 years are just the same stuff over and over
2: again. Well, look, Why I am would...
4: I saying this in public? This is moronic. I, I would I'm
2: say, so stupid. I, I would say, look, Jerry Goldsmith, as far as as not only did his theme become. Oh, my God, this is going
4: to come out. Why am I doing this?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, listen, Lucas. I mean, Jared. One of the another great piece of since we're talking about Jerry Goldsmith, the Klingon theme that was introduced in Star Trek: uh, The Motion Picture was used many times, and even when it wasn't used directly, it was influential to all of the music that was ever written for the Klingons yep. uh, up until really recently. And then also another one of the great pieces of music was I written in, said in so in first, up until recently. in first contact. Yes, the the moment where the Phoenix uh, takes off, yeah, yep. and yeah where his kid wrote it, there, Joel well, wrote that. Well, it's one of the great pieces of music, also written for Star Trek, and and I think even even Star Trek Five, like. The climbing of El Capitan, that that piece of music, and
3: the moon is a window to heaven.
2: I love Star okay. Trek Five, and I think no, no, the I, actually, I expanded re-release the is even better. I love it's the even score. Yeah, I mean, sure. the movies. and you know, then we haven't talked about James Horner coming in and and for Star well, we Trek will. Two and Three. We we, 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 we will talk I about that. I have all as... that
4: since I've already like. Wait, is there any, <laughs> any more shit Sully, you'd like to talk about, Jeremy? Tol- no, no, I can talk. <laughs> I tell you the Horner story. Awesome. Sure.
1: let's hear the Horner story.
4: Well, Nick Meyer is an educated man, as you guys know, and he knows classical music, and he was on the scoring stage. And, and... His Nick
1: knows as well. Excuse me. And Nick knows he's an educated man too, and he well, won't.
4: He's a proud he's man. He's an opportunity to tell you. I just ask. I I, love, I like Nick. He's he's like a we you know my too. grouchy old grandfather Elf or something.
0: Um, Yoda. <laughs> Yoda.
4: No, he he was on the scoring stage, and he heard a part of the Battle of the Mutara Nebula, and he goes, "Oh my God, it's Alexander Nevsky!" What you know? And he pulls Horner aside, and he says. You know, like, what is this? You know, you think I don't know? And Horner sort of sheepishly says, uh, "Well, I'm young. I haven't outgrown my influences." Yeah, and yeah, but so he was
0: still doing that for ten years after that. Uh, you know, <laughs> wait, wait, wait,
3: wait. So, so what? Meyer was upset that Horner was poaching. kind of was poaching. Okay, but it the the whole theme for Star Trek Six, Cliff Edelman's score basically came from the Hulse. Planets. The yeah. Planets. Well, that
4: was right. Yeah, that was on. I and guess. then he
3: wanted to hire him again when he was a consultant on uh, on Discovery. So I know, and I haven't heard it, but I understand that Edelman actually wrote music mm-hmm. for Discovery. Yeah, that, there's some that wasn't demos used.
4: that he released under some generic title. Um, so I guess Nick, uh, he got wise, yeah. it's, no, I, I guess if it's his idea, it's acceptable. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think that <laughs> right. if, if he felt, I don't know. You could ask him. Maybe he felt just a little ambush that it's his movie and all of a sudden he hears one of the, you know, this passage by Prokofiev in the middle of the movie. I heard a
1: passage yeah. from Battle Beyond the Stars
2: and I loved it. Damn, <laughs> oh, that was, I was going to say Star Trek II is actually humanoids from the deep, yeah. <laughs> which came out It's know, a lot earlier. of things.
4: There's a section in when Spock is in the radiation chamber that is lifted I mean, lifted like for fifty seconds from uh, Benjamin Britten piece. Um, it's pretty overt if you play him. and then then the whole piece is again in Cocoon. So when I was a little kid, I was like, "How dare you? This is crazy!" And then, you know, you get old, and it's like, "Who cares?" Well, good but, poets. Borrow. Well,
1: you're on a tough, tight
2: schedule, and no, you know, I don't if know. Inspiration I mean, doesn't strike, and you have but maybe it, it struck it. somebody else. Well, <laughs> aliens, aliens <laughs> lifts pieces from Star Trek too.
4: Well, he had his. He had a. He had a bag, and yeah. he went into that bag fairly liberally, correctly, assuming that nobody really listens to movie music except nerds, and so that and it most just people, sort of. Yeah, most it people. It just sort don't. of washes over the audience. So, um, since I've, I'm now, I, also feel, want to, I want to unburden myself of all these things I've carried.
1: Welcome before. to Star Trek movie therapy. Right. So I Star also want to movie music therapy. I, I, I also <laughs> want to you know point out it was about this time that. Uh, g and Crescendo, Neil Norman put out the Cage album, uh, which also was something really exciting for us because it was the first time that music from the original series was released. Now a couple of these compilation, like greatest sci-fi movie themes had put out the main title, Big Freaking Deal, the Alexander Courage t- main title, you know, Music of the Galaxies or whatever, but um, there were nine zillion of those compilations back in the day before playlists.
0: So that, that uh, Music from the Galaxies album had an amazing arrangement of a mixture of the Courage uh, TOS theme and the Goldsmith motion picture theme. Yeah, I know. It's it's great. <laughs> no, it, the for, name is just Goofy. Off, it's great. Yeah, yeah. So, I anyway. also
2: have an original master recording, you know, those albums that used to come with like the black covers, the original master recording of There's a comp, a two disc set called Final Frontier. That has like the Doctor oh, Who. Oh, I theme. had
1: that. That was the first CD I ever bought. That's it was C- a two CD. Yes, set. it was. I still that, have that Peter, CD. Peter Gabriel. So, I bought that <laughs> and 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 that
2: Final Frontier. That Final Frontier disc is awesome. Yeah, it's got re recordings of all your favorite themes, but it's it's. First of all, it sounds incredible. It's incredibly well produced. But it was the first time like I owned the Doctor. It was the first time I ever heard the Doctor Who theme in a re- recording other than on the it, show. It was great. It's, I remember. It's it. great. Oh my god! And it's That's got so Superman, funny, and then it's got some original compositions by I don't yeah, even know. Yeah, right. It had
1: some original music in there. Was this in the
2: seventies? Was this? Funny? No, it was eighty. Eighties. It was, the 80s. was, the 80s. It was oh, like uh, had... the dawn of the CD. Era. Yes, huh. and it was, and there was a company called Telarc. Oh was yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And all right, they, so uh, it's the Eric Kunzel record. It's not. It's not the Kunzel stuff is always too slow. But this was not a Kunzel record. This <laughs> totally. is totally. It's a I it's, It was too agree. slow, and but this you had it. You're the only person I've ever met. I still have it. That so do I. That that is has that record. I've never met anybody like Taylor White. Always wanted me to give it to him. He's like, would you give me this disc? And I, I don't know how many people have it, but it's amazing.
1: And I remember, I knew it was a knockoff, because the whole thing is black with, like, this lame font for the Final Frontier. But it had such great stuff on it, I had to get it. And it sounds And I incredible. also got Peter Townsend's White City the same day, at the Wiz. <laughs> 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 on Flatbush
2: Avenue and Avenue M. Long gone. <laughs> but original master recordings, for those of you who don't know, they were, like, the, the way they put out great vinyl today, these were, like, much heavier gauge... Uh, a vinyl, and they were like, you know, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon came out as, as an original master recording. And this was such this weird anomalous thing that just showed up. I'm like, well, I gotta have that. It's gonna be a super quality. Right. Now, and, and now, Lucas, tell us a
1: little bit about, and now we may be doing a little bit of a deep cut where nobody really cares, but... I'll, make, really it cared before. I'll but, make it interesting. I'll make it interesting. But, you know, there was that period of time where Varez, you know, GMP came out with the cage, and then Verez and Southern Cross came out, up, out with... Albums of Star Trek music, but it wasn't the original Masters. No, they did their it own was, recordings. They did, yeah. they recorded. Where, tell us how that came about, why two labels had it, why they weren't the original Masters, and 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 then, um, you know, then there were a couple of more albums of collections after that, and then they stopped until... All
4: right, well, all right, so the, the story is that in the old days, in order to put... A, a, a film or TV s- soundtrack on a record album, you had to pay the musicians' union fees all over again. So it was wildly prohibitive. And so I think Varese Sarabande and Label X, Label X was in Australian and for, for Varese Sarban, they actually got Fred Steiner, one of the composers, to do it. They figured, I guess, as a, as a creative and a business venture, um, well, let's do our own recordings. And also at that time, nobody had the tapes. Mm-hmm. So I got to tell the whole story about the master tapes to the original Star Trek series were ripped off. I mean, like a lot of, there were a lot of sticky fingers at the end of that show Mm -hmm. and Roddenberry had the stickiest, (laughs) you know, taking home all that trims and all that stuff and selling scripts and giving his wife something to do. But someone else stole the tapes. And I've heard that they were they were either going to be thrown out and somebody was, quote, unquote, rescuing them by taking them home. Or I've heard that it was just outright theft, whatever. I know who it was. And why not name names? It was a guy named John Detra, D.E.T.R.A., who was a film editor in Hollywood. And I know this because he later he died and there were a few other tapes that his that were being sold in an estate sale. So he was the guy who stole them or got them somehow. He put an ad in like the LA, L.A. Times that he was selling these things, and somebody who I can't name, who's been affiliated with Star Trek for decades, who's a really good guy, rescued them. He actually did rescue them. He bought them from this guy who ripped them off, and this other guy had them for years and years and years. And so in the '80s, because nobody had these things, you guys know. We know. We're not telling. You I know because um, they're still alive. And I respect this and guy so a great their deal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I. It's not that I don't get the joke. I wasn't listening. Oh, okay. Right. Um, so nobody had the tapes. So the only thing they could do was, were new recordings. And if you get the rights from the publisher, you can, you can do it. So that's why there are more than one label. And then Neil Norman wanted to do the original tracks, and they contacted Sandy Courage. And, and even though the, the, the master tapes were gone, Sandy had a tape that was like the, the tape that they gave him here. Thanks for doing our show, and you can take this home. Right. And it didn't sound very good. So that's why that first album that Crescendo did, it doesn't sound very good and it's missing some pieces. Um, but they put that out and then around 1990, the person who had the Star Trek tapes got in touch with GMP Crescendo and they did a deal and so Neil Norman had the tapes. Now Neil's the son of a guy named Gene Norman who had a famous nightclub called The Crescendo in in Hollywood on the Sunset Strip. And he had a famous record label and, and Neil is his son and Neil loves sci-fi and sci-fi music and and was um, sort of taking the family business in that direction doing soundtrack albums so Neil did a few volumes um, in the late 80s early 90s and then he sort of lost interest and he's moved on to other things Uh, but he still had the tape so flash forward to 2012 or 11 and I called the guys at La, La Land. I said, guys, aren't you doing these the original? I heard you got, you know, I Third CBS said you could do the original series. Why aren't you doing this already? It's like, oh, well, we don't have the tapes. and We can da da da, da. So I, I, without going into the details, I, I knew both parties and I worked out a deal. And, you know, it was sort of expensive for everyone involved, but some things are worth it. You know, this is one of the few things you can do a $225 box arc. set and and actually sell thousands of copies. So I'm like, guys... Guys, really, what's 200 times 3,000? They're like, oh, wow, we can afford that. It was like half a million bucks. So it's like a real budget. Um, So I was the intermediary. We had a deal. So I had a check, and I drove a check over to Neil Norman's house in the Hollywood Hills. And he takes a check and says, okay, here are the tapes. And he had like these seven plastic tubs that had these quarter-inch and a few half-inch old master tapes. They were perfectly preserved. It was He was good to his word and everything was in great shape. You know, it wasn't next to his magnet collection or something stupid. <laughs> um, no, look, I mean, he's, he's a nice guy. I liked him. I t- you know, his wife was nice. He was, you know, you wanted to make sure that they would be taken care of and it was a fair deal and it was a fair deal. So I get that it's, it's in April. It's a foggy night and I have a Subaru you Coupe. you went off a cliff and that was the <laughs> No, end of- I'll tell you the story, but I had, so I'm in a Subaru Coupe From the same one I used to have, that blue the Blue Mobile. I still have it. In fact, it's a 95 car, and it's a two-door. So I'm loading these tapes into it, and it's like they're practically falling out the window, and like I can barely move the gear shift. And Neil goes, hey, we should have a glass of wine to celebrate. I said, Neil, I'm about to drive down Mulholland with the only— Surviving master tapes to Star Trek in my car. Do you really want me to have a bottle, <laughs> glass of wine right now? He goes, <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Never mind." Well, you know. <laughs> so I I made it home. It was like just one of the most surreal experiences of my life. Because if I had gone off the cliff, that's that's it. Those are they're gone. They're gone. Forever. There weren't backups. The backups were next to the originals in the in the tubs, and then I um, took them home. And my wife was probably. The least understanding person who'd care about what's she's like. Well, I see that you're happy. I was like, I'll only take a picture of you with the tapes. And she's like, Okay, um, and then I couldn't wait to hear him because we had to bring you know, I can't just play him, so I had to get the engineer. And then it's like, Oh my god, is everything gonna be there? And it was there, and uh,
2: there was things we'd never heard before, there's things
4: we never heard before, and you know, you actually pull out the um. You pull out the recording slips with the log sheets, and it for like, you know, for Paradise Syndrome, it still says Paleface.
0: Oh, oh that's wow! Interesting.
4: Deep dive, you know, it's got all the numbers, and so it was really cool, and um so cool. I'm glad we did that, and and those guys at La La Land really stepped up to make that happen.
1: Oh, you know, they did such a great job, and they continue to do a great job not only on the Star Trek library, but everything they do. They 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 deserve anyone who's a fan of film music and, and, and catalog titles. I mean, you did a yeoman's job with your label. I mean, some of the stuff that you preserved and put out w- w- was amazing. And I think La, La Land's continuing that tradition with just the fabulous titles that those guys, that the, the mats are. Yeah, some are, of are my catalog out.
4: just ended up in Homecoming. Oh, really? Yeah. I was like, that's my master. Because Homecoming's all tracked with, like, Marathon Man. Capricorn and, uh, One. And Capricorn One. Mm-hmm. and uh, And... Three Days of the Condor. It's fantastic. And... But
2: La La Land, by the way, is still putting out things, though, that I never thought I'd ever get the score to less than zero. <laughs> and they put out the, they did Ferris Bueller and less than zero like yeah, two years it's ago. Great. And I'm like, it's, oh, this I had is to such get a different era. There's a double feature
3: for I've you. <laughs>
4: always been a little like defensive and insecure about my love of this stuff. You guys understand. But when I was like 15, I went to the Star Trek convention, one of those uh, creation cons like in Boston. And I was like, oh my God, finally, you know, people who are not going to give me wedgies, people like me, like Star Trek, and, and I can meet them, talk to them about Star Trek, da, 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 da. And then
3: you met the Klingon Club.
4: Yeah, I did. And I said, <laughs> I, I was like. So after
0: they gave you wedgies? Yeah. What
4: no, happened? This, no, I was in an elevator, and this guy starts whistling the, the Goldsmith themes of Star Trek. And I go, hey, you know, he's doing the new movie, Star Trek V. And the guy goes, what? I said, well, you were whistling the theme. And he goes, I didn't even know what I was whistling. And I was like, you know what? They love everything about Star Trek, but except the music. The music, that means nothing. And it gave me a sad.
2: That isn't That's true. That's worse than a That happened. We it love really, the music. You guys love it. I remember when Neil Bulk, we were at Jeff Bond's party. Jeff Bond, who wrote the music of Star Trek. This was like last year or two years ago. Which and, is a great book about the music of Star Trek. Yeah, Neil tells me that you guys are doing the animated series music. And he did. I, was I went bananas. I Neil's was a drunk, great. But I went drunken bananas. <laughs>
4: Neil used to call me and he'd go like, oh, Hey, Lucas, can I tell you something really cool? And i say, as long as it's not about Star Trek. And he goes... Uh oh uh, okay. That actually that happened. That happened once.
1: But you know and then subsequently there have been all these great reissues and expanded editions, Star Trek two, Star Trek Three, Star Trek IV. Yeah, no, you're welcome. Star, yeah, Star Trek Five and they're, they're all, you know, just uh, and Star Trek 6. I mean, and, and, you know, just a- every every piece of music that you could hope to have. And, you know, look, I don't think there really is a bad movie score. I mean, with the exception of Star Trek IV. 4. <laughs> you know, they're all, I mean, you so know, Did corner... you guys
4: know going into Star Trek 4 was a different composer? Yes. I did not. I was, yeah. I was 12 and I didn't. And the music starts and I'm like, this is wrong. <laughs> oh,
1: God, I knew. And I mean, I knew it was the guy who had done the animated Lord of the Rings. And I was horrified. I was in sheer terror.
4: I'll tell you my Leonard Roseman stories. Go no, ahead. he was, he was a, he was a brilliant guy. He was, he really was a great composer and he was a brilliant intellect. And I met him very late in his life. And unfortunately he had uh frontotemporal dementia mm. and I didn't know this. And he was very odd and he didn't remember names. And like, so we called him to interview him and he goes, Oh yeah, sure. And, um, but he couldn't remember names, and we're starting to think something's, what's going on? And then he'd call us and say, hey, you want to get lunch? And we go, okay. So, like, Jeff Bond and I would go and have lunch with Leonard Roseman. Like, who's going to turn that down? Yeah. And it just sort of was weirder and weirder until his wife told me, you know, Leonard's got this thing. And I was like, oh, okay. And I'm I'm sorry. Um, but I still spent some time with him because he could still do his music. Right. He couldn't remember names, and his personality was affected. But he was, a, he was a delightful guy. He was very funny. And he was telling me you know, he had a difficult life in many ways. I asked him once, I said, you know, just out of curiosity, like, what'd your parents do? he's, you know, he's from Brooklyn, I think too. And, um, he said, oh, my parents were terrible, evil, horrible people. I go, I'm sorry. He goes, yeah, I only wish they were still alive so I could kill them. (laughs) 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 And I go, all right. And then I, and he was telling me about that and he told me, he had, he was married four times and his second wife, Literally, like, said, I have to go to the bathroom and drop dead from a brain hemorrhage. Oh, my God. Like, just dead and young. I mean, she was in her 40s. She was a lyricist. Um And he he was, like, really good friends with James Dean. That was not baloney. Like, they were very good friends. Mm. And so some of those things in, like, the Dean biopics that are dramatized, it was real. Like, Dean would call Leonard Roseman and say, you want to play basketball? And he's like, I, I got to work. Why? And Dean would finally say, yeah, you know, when— you know, it's like when you have your dad and you want to play basketball with him. And Leonard would say, I'm not your dad. And later realizing what a terrible life Dean had had. And so I said, wow, you know, you've really had like a tough life. You lost your wife, your best friend. And he goes, yeah, my brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was funny. Wow. He was funny, even in that condition. He was really funny. Well, and then you
1: look at uh, you know, you know these these, these legendary figures who were friends with Star Trek directors, and of course you had Kubrick and his relationship with uh, Gerald Fried.
4: That's true. I could do the moth with all this stuff,
1: and and and, and Peck and Peckinpah <laughs> with uh, Jerry
3: Fielding.
4: That, that's true. This is real deep dive. Yeah, Jerry Fielding, who scored Spectre of the Gun, was then Peckinpah's composer. And um, it's so interesting in, in my travels, like I found when they were doing... Pre- I did a soundtrack album "The Pretty Maids All in a Row. Yes. Yeah. Which I love, the Lala Schifrin score. And I was looking at memos that they were writing, trying to figure out who to hire to do Pretty Maids All in a Row.
1: Now, let, let's just, before he, he, he finishes the story, tell the audience who doesn't know, The Pretty Maids All in a Row is an MGM movie that came out in the early 70s, written by Gene Roddenberry right. and directed by Roger Vadim.
4: Two of uh, the biggest perverts in the Western world. <laughs> I mean, and it's now
1: available on Warner Archive Home Video. <laughs> That's right. And it's it, a
4: terrible, as bizar- is like comes from an alternate dimension. And I
1: and think. Jimmy Dewan and William Campbell are both in it for oh, you Star I Trek Complete. And Rock
4: Hudson as the lecherous gym instructor. It is yeah. who
1: may or may not be killing high school co-eds.
4: which is basically Roddenberry's writing himself as Rock Hudson as the lecherous gym teacher with all the, with tons of nudity. It is tr- is one of the weirdest movies of all time. And I found a memo where they're saying who should we hire, and there was a note. Some Jerry Fielding and someone made like a handwritten note. He's a television composer, like poo poo. Mm. You know, this was right around the time he was doing the Wild Bunch and oh, Straw Dogs. Yeah, that's a good TV show. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Outlaw Josie Wales. That's a good TV show, right?
2: Well, you know, one of the things that that you did too is we haven't talked much about the next generation music, but when I was doing the the Blu-ray. Uh, documentaries. One of my favorite things was they would send me all of the music tracks from all of the episodes along, when we we would get the new episode, the new remastered episode, they would send us all the music tracks. And I was never a fan of the next generation music and no one will ever appreciate this but each season of those documentaries i scored using I the season music it. i knew it. i was I, very much... i know
4: that's m13 from episode 52 yes <laughs> i mean i was
2: i was really diligent about that music and and making every well, season you used
4: all of ron scores because ron jones wrote tunes because he just did best. he was uncontrollable and he just did whatever he wanted
2: and i think we when did that box set come out the Ron My, Jones the Project, yeah. Um,
4: ten years ago, maybe?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was probably before. And, you know, I couldn't go back and just use that box set. I had to wait till it was officially oh, I given see. to me. Yeah. So when I was given those tracks, I really developed an appreciation for the music that was... Because I was always like, this music is not nearly as good as the original series. What Rick Berman thought about how uh, when a bad guy would show up, the music of the original series is tremendous. When the Doomsday Machine shows up... Yes, it's it's very much a black hat piece of music. Same with the the Mirror Universe music, which is incredible, and and it was on those original Varez Saraband uh, albums. You know, they had mm-hmm. that was oh, the first yeah. time I was able to hear that Mirror Mirror Universe again, which music, which was great. Unlike the iMud music, right? Uh, not good. <laughs> Can I tell you my? Th- I, but I, I it got... was great because but you you were the one that first put me on to Ron Jones's music, and then when we were using it for those for those the documentaries, I would always he was always my go to guy.
4: I... He's a great guy. Uh, he's up in Seattle now doing like jazz, and he built well, wasn't a recording. he doing um,
1: uh, Family Guy for a while? Because he Seth MacFarlane a huge an fan. He
4: was, and he, um, I was at his Family Guy scoring session, and they're doing a cue, and for some reason the animation involves Lois getting an enormous breast, and Peter's drooling all over them. So he's about to conduct this cue, his arms, he's ready for the green stripe to go across, and there was a technical something. It's an image of this giant cartoon breast, and, he, and Ron goes. This is why we're in Iraq. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Um And then Dennis McCarthy, of course, is doing uh one of the composers. Dennis McCarthy on... is at
4: home watching Fox News as we speak.
1: Oh okay. Yeah. I thought he was working on um Orville.
4: No, Dennis isn't. No, they Who's got on Joel McNeely and John, oh, right, De- John yeah. Debney.
1: Oh John Debney, that's right. That's oh. right. That's
3: right. McCarthy did the score for Generations, right? Yes, that's good. Yeah. Dennis um, is
4: one of the most delightful people you'll ever. Meet. That's what I've always heard. I've heard he's a delightful person. To the Right of Attila the Hun. Well, I, I, I learned I, that only recently. So I'm that's not okay, a, I'm so not a right.
1: fan of his music, and now I'm not a fan of his politics either. Uh,
4: uh, you know, he wrote some. He, he, had a, um, he had a very sophisticated sense of color and of mood, and even inside that box that Rick Berman put him in. If you, it's true. If you take away those scores, it's like, oh my god. If you ever watch those episodes with just the production audio, you know this about any show. But it's like, oh yeah yeah yeah. Who's ever gonna watch this? It is like, it's like people talking, reading a phone book.
0: Well, his his uh, score for the pilot episode of Next Generation Encounter at Farpoint is really good.
4: I don't like it. I, look, <laughs> yeah, I don't particularly like I,
0: it. I, I think I think it's really good for um, for. Trying to capture a little of that TOS feel, and still you know push forward into the future. I think it's it's fine, and th- you know this represents the show that Roddenberry wanted. So, you know, whatever you whatever you can say about it, it's it's kind of the direction that he wanted I to go. I like in.
2: Fred Steiner scored a code of oh honor.
0: God, that's the worst.
2: <laughs> um, you know, I think what happened was a lot of the there's a real over reliance on synthesizer in, in Next Generation. I mean, even though they had a, not, they had a I, lot of they scored the they used orchestras. They didn't orchestras. like that.
4: They didn't like that. That was Ron's doing. And then they made him. Ron got in tra- he they fired him in in TV you don't really get fired because you're it's not like you don't get like asked just, back don't get hired you hired just asked ask back and he told me when he was he he um he had a real fiasco on the episode Brothers where he tried to use a Synclavier which was this real like million dollar keyboard that was big in the late eighties and it was a really expensive piece of gear and it was it's in a lot of film scores it's like in Predator it's really cool and he tried to do an episode with it but he tried to sync it. He tried to slave it to the MIDI. It's a technical thing, but instead of having a keyboard player there actually playing it, it would just be all programmed, and then you press the start button, and it plays, and it crashed, because there was a chip that didn't work with an Apple chip, and it was he actually had to call the session and do a rewrite, and it was like DEF CON. I always forget. Is DEF CON 1 or 5 the worst? 1. One. Okay. It was like DEF CON 1, and, and from Defcon that- DEF and, and after that, like they were what just- What was the movie?
1: DEFCON. DEFCON 4. DEFCON 4. Christ,
4: Christopher Young, right? Uh, scored that. Roger
1: Corman, right? right.
5: DEFCON oh, 4 is man. basically well, like... What is I, let me ask you something. Like <laughs> yeah. Jay, Jay Chataway came on Literally, board. yeah. When Jay Chataway...
2: All I knew of Jay Chataway was Jay Chataway scored the 1980 film Maniac. And Silver Bullet. Starring yeah. I didn't, well Joe Spinell, Maniac, yeah. directed by Bill Lustig. One of the most lurid... I wouldn't exactly call Caroline it a movie. Caroline Monroe and Joe Spinell. Uh, Tom Savini did the effects. It's got incredible scalping scenes and it's got a great head blowing off scene in the front of a car and, and this really, really haunting sort of synthesizer score that Verez Saraband put out on vinyl. If it was and then a, suddenly Jay Chattaway is writing Star Trek music. He, I'm like, um, how does a dude who wrote music for Maniac because on Star he had Trek? also
4: done Silver Bullet and he had done a, a whale documentary and they needed. Maybe he you know. should have done Star Trek 4. <laughs> yeah. Well. What happened was that Ron Jones had a trip to the former Soviet Union for education to be at some seminar. And he told them, like, for months, "Okay, I'm going on this week. You don't need me, right? And they said, no, no, the schedule's clear. And then the schedule changed and he was still going to the Soviet Union. They needed a composer. And it was one of those things where they just called the music department and say, can you get us a composer? We need a composer. And some, somehow someone knew that Jay Chattaway was a very fine composer and they sent him over. That's why Tin Man is this weird episode. It's like the only spec script that they basically just shot the spec script and yeah. then they scored it with a newcomer and it's really good.
3: I love Tin Man. And in fact, I remember um, being struck by how different the music sounded in that episode. And I think it was half the reason why I loved that show. Just because it suddenly... Maybe it was just a fact that I was having this different emotional experience and kind of interaction with the episode that it felt like I was truly in something alien for Star Trek. Yeah, I, I can't explain it, but I, I
0: remember that
4: score. Well, he I used a recorder episode. and he used... You're going to crap di-
3: all over me, aren't you, Darren No, i not, love that score.
0: I, okay. I'm not. I'm just, so, does, so does Jay, by the way. But, but I, I, I do want to point out that what an amazing sort of um, litmus test... Cause I hate that episode. (laughs) Why? Why? Why do you hate? I I just I just watched it once and I I thought I hate it. I hate I hated the I hated the guest stars. I hated the story. I hated the effects. I hated the music. I hated everything about it. And I don't. How do you really feel, Darren? But But did you like it? But I think it's really (laughs) funny. (laughs) That you know we we all kind of like the same stuff. But there are certain things that we can be diametrically opposed on. I just think it's interesting. Yeah, like politics.
2: What of Lazarus? (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, we're not going there see, again. Well,
0: we're not going to uh,
1: alternative factor again. Rick, not again. It was too painful last time.
4: I have to explain because I understand what Rick Berman wanted for these shows. He didn't want like cheesy old television music. So there's an aspect of the Encounter at Farpoint score that's really like cheesy old television music. It's kind of like swaggering and you know it's
1: because that was Justman. Because Justman was still involved well, with picking the composers right, at that B- point. Right, and Bob
4: Justman was supervising the post and year one and then he left and and then but Rick Berman to his credit he had a vision for how this show could be better they've you know after two years they fired the DP, DP you know they started doing things a lot differently they realized that Patrick Stewart's their best actor and get him more to do and you know they really reconfigured the show and they made it into a smash hit and Michael Pillar did too just Rick Berman is like he's just a weird cat you know he just doesn't like underscoring. He, you know, he would be happier as the producer of The Wire because they didn't have underscoring. He just really found it kind of like intrusive and annoying. That but they he were
1: wouldn't the... be as rich as he is now if he produced The Wire.
3: Yeah, but he totally know. would have called it The Wire. I don't count I don't count <laughs> There was people's an episode of Space the, called best, the Wire. You know, the best yeah. <laughs> explanation I've
4: ever heard for how to understand Rick Berman is why Enterprise is kind of weird. And the theory was this. Rick Berman is a weird guy, and he had one friend on that show, Brandon Braga. And if you watch Enterprise, the show, the captain is a sort of weird, aloof guy who's uncomfortable with people and has one friend who's Trip.
2: Oh, I thought it was the dog.
4: No, his one friend's, uh, um, you know, Tucker. Oh, yeah. And because that's Rick Berman and Brandon Bragg.
2: You know, it was interesting. Doing, doing the documentaries for... I had been a Rick Berman detractor. I was not a fan of his until I actually met him. And when I went to his house, his house is this beautifully appointed... Home, The house he has in Sherman Oaks. His wife was beautiful. There's pictures. He produced a show called Big Blue Marble, which is a travel show from the, for kids, for young people that was in their early 70s, where he literally traveled around the world. And he's a scuba diver and he drinks the best wine and he knows everything about foods all over the world. And he's an incredibly worldly, learned guy. And I, I think that he never, here he took over Star Trek because he was on his way out at Paramount and he got lucky. But I don't think that he ever really felt comfortable. He wanted to bring, I think, some of his own worldliness, which could never happen, into Star Trek. He wanted to turn it into something it never was going to be. And he had to sort of resolve himself to that fact and he's like, oh, I'm going to make a go of this, and I'm going I'm to try and preserve Jean. I think Watt, there's Watt something Warren. to be said for that. You know, it's funny. I
1: had similar experiences, as you know, with 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 Rick, you know, who's very generous with his time over the years. When I was a journalist, and even when I was doing my book, the 50 Year Mission, you know, all, there was a lot of criticism, particularly from the Deep Space Nine camp, of Rick. Um, and it was very important to me to get an interview with him so he could rebut, uh, uh, explain his point of view, that it could be balanced. And I had a bunch of people reach out to him because I wasn't hearing back. And, you know, he 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 wouldn't commit. He wouldn't commit. And literally, I think right before I was about to turn in the book, I said, you know, this is the last time I'm going to reach out. I just can't. I said, I, I, maybe I didn't say it quite like this, but I said it would be, really be in your interest to speak to me, you know, because I just needed the balance because otherwise it was going to be, you know, just the shit on Rick book you know and i i didn't want that because you know having worked in television you know i know how difficult it is to sit in that you know chair and 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 to make the tough unpopular decisions and you know we all have a different way we would do star trek and anyway so he finally gets back to me and he says i'll talk to you but only for 20 minutes so three hours later, we get off of the phone. I said, you know, Rick, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And, you know, it, it was it's really helpful. And, uh, you know, you were my white whale, you know. and Who was the one who
4: called you the Antichrist? Uh, that was Pillar. Oh.
1: But he goes, and, 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 and Berman says to me, he goes, well, you finally harpooned your white whale. <laughs> and uh, at one point... After the book came out, one of the writers, I won't say who, said, you know, I, I, I you know, I love your book. It's the definitive book, you know, ever written on Star Trek, I said, But it's really brutal about Rick. And I said, I don't find that to be the case at all. I think it's extremely fair to Rick, and I think Rick comes across really well. You know, and I, I think he, you know, especially he gets to articulate how um uh, you know how and why the decisions he made, and why you know some of these other people who are critical of him. You know why he he thinks f- feels unfair. He addressed the music issue among many other issues, and so it's very it's very interesting. Everything's Rashomon. Everything's completely subjective. We
4: vastly underestimate the massive task of producing like hundreds of hours of TV year after year, twenty six a year, two shows at the same time. That's insane.
2: He did twenty five seasons of Star Trek.
4: It's insane. Yeah. I mean to be the, and to be the head guy. And do that for like seventeen years. That's that's crazy. Well, and
1: it's funny because I know when we were talking for the book, you know, Rick said to me, he said, you know, there are a couple other stories I'd like to tell you, but there's no way I'm telling you for the book. So when it comes out, you should give me a call, we'll have a drink, and I'll tell you the real story. And I know Rob, you had a similar experience when you were interviewing oh, him yes. for um, for your uh, project for your for for the DVDs, the Blu-rays.
2: No, he he was, you know, and I, I was sympathetic. He was very, for us when we first went in there, he's like we went to his house. And I think at first, you know, Roger Lay Jr., uh, who, who it was his project and he brought me on. Roger and I, we wanted to, he was our white whale too. Yeah, we wanted yeah, to yeah. Get you didn't get him until the him. end either. We got him, yeah, we got him a little, but once, he had heard that we weren't, you know, mouth-breathing weird fanboys. He had sort of, he, he had that. <laughs> well, he, he hear he that. that. I know. <laughs> but once we went in there and and sat down, he actually said to me afterwards, because I interviewed him, he said he really appreciated I'm sure he said something like this to you. The questions that uh, we tried to ask erudite questions that would appeal yeah, to him. Sure, and he he's a guy that he doesn't have to suffer fools gladly. But y- you know, he was a no, guy because that he has fu money. I yeah, mean, he has fu money that times. That. Oh, uh, yeah. uh, infinite Can fu. Seventeen years, twenty five <laughs> seasons. A lot of fu. Yeah, money. I mean, I mean that's
1: like a lot of people oh. when they say, "Well, why didn't they?" You know, after a couple of years, why didn't they leave the show? Because you know, weren't they burnt out? Yeah, they were burnt out. But w- what they were getting paid. And the, yeah. and you gotta keep in mind, the studio did not want them to leave. It was a finely tuned machine, it was still getting ratings, you know, until he had his falling out with Les, it, it was like, please stay and we'll just keep throwing
2: money at you. Right, right. And there was there's no but on the other hand, if you look, we as fans have a very different experience. What people don't understand is as a Star Trek fan, you are experiencing the universe of Star Trek. The in-universe of it. You're not thinking about the the problems that went in or appreciating the problems that go into producing a weekly television show. Nor should you. You're the audience. But it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, they did have a well-oiled machine. But after the first two years of Tumult, actually the first three years on Next Generation, they it took them a while to get there. And it took them a while uh, to to get to get that well oiled machine. But, but once you hard. have it, you don't want to break it, right. and 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 then that's
1: when it becomes repetitive, and you start doing the same thing over and over again because y- you settle into. You know, you're getting home at a reasonable hour, you're making your days, you're not going into OT, and it, and it becomes very comfortable. And, you know, the, the thrill is sort of gone that you had in the beginning because now it's just, you know, now it's just product. And and, and people, you know, don't understand that. Like, how can they not understand? They're working on Star Trek. Well, right. you know, they're working on their, like, ninth season of Star Trek, you know, doing 22 episodes a year. 26, right? 26, Yeah.
2: No, and and you're right. And it, it goes on and when the studio tasks you to create a new show, you're not gonna be like, you know what, I'm I think you should hire some other real big star You're not star gonna Trek be like Pillar. On board. Like Pillar
1: <laughs> literally walked away when he didn't have to. Because he figured he was he'd done enough. I mean, you know, and then he said all that he had to say. That's very rare in this business. Right. You know, you usually gotta put get pushed out the airlock. You know, he was a guy who actually like walked away because he felt like you know, he was well, done. Well, it
4: was like he, someone said in your book, he had no guile.
1: Yeah. He just... Well, Pillar was an extraordinary guy. We we yeah. did um, you know, um, uh, what's it called the uh the the, the G- Great Birds of the Galaxy show where we talked it, and we've barely talked about Pillar, and he probably deserves his own show because he was really an extraordinary guy, and he, he 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 like so many others is is one of these people who came to Star Trek at just the right time to to, to save it for another.
4: I one of my theories is that the, the most influential and transformative people who've worked on Star Trek have not been Star Trek fans. It's almost to the one. It's like Nick Meyer, uh, Michael Piller, Rick Berman.
1: Oh, and like, you could say J.J.
4: J.J. I then, mean, yeah.
1: regardless of what you think of those movies, he saved Star Trek in 2009. Now even Alex
4: Kurtzman. I mean, it was it was it was Bob Orsi who was the big yeah, Star Trek fan.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Bob was the fan. J.J. admits he was a Star Wars fan, not a Star Trek fan. Yeah. So anyway, so before we wrap up, I just want to say favorite piece of Star Trek music, starting with Rob
2: uh I think probably uh th- oh, favorite pe- god come back to me okay
1: another <laughs> pass. Pass. Wait, pass. I can't. <laughs> pass. okay I can't. Darren Dockerman
0: name uh, that tune from the uh, from the motion picture soundtrack the meld the meld oh good mm-hmm. good good call good call um Ashley uh
3: honestly cliff edelman's uh Star trek six main title Really? Yeah. I mean, I like it.
1: Don't yeah. get me wrong.
3: You know why? Because it was different.
1: Uh, unless you had heard Hulse's plan. Well, yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was different for Star and Trek. And Firebird. They expressed something different. new about
4: uh, Star Trek. Lucas? Battle in the Mutara Nebula. Oh, yeah. yeah that's that. great. That's, and, you know, what you hear when you're seven, I mean, that sticks with you, right?
1: So Absolutely. And that's why I'm going to go with Saul Kaplan's Doomsday Machine score. You know, um, but, uh, you know, which, which is closely, you know, uh, look, it's hard because it's, it's, I mean, that Star Trek, the motion picture, you could pick any track from that yeah. freaking score and it's magnificent. And, uh, and then, but then uh, James Horner's score for Star Trek two is great in a completely different way. And Star Trek three is, and that's stealing the enterprise track.
0: It's yeah. fantastic. Well, the score from Star Trek three is the best part of the movie. Yes, absolutely. Yes.
1: And, and and Star Trek Six is a great album. I mean, I was kidding with you about. I I love the Star Trek Six. I I love the fact that the theme was for the villain. Yeah, you know that it wasn't a heroic theme that he was scoring for the Klingons. Exactly. You know, for Putin. Um and. Uh, <laughs> It's it's really and then of course, you know, you look at what Ron Jones did with Best of Both Worlds. That was that's oh God, a terrific yeah. score. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but it's really good. It's the best but next but
4: you generation remember.
1: score. But you know, I just wanna say, because as as Lucas said, if you're that guy whistling in the elevator, these themes and don't know the music, go Varez has put out a bunch of the movie scores. Um they did a wonderful uh, two uh, CD set of Nemesis. Um, the uh, uh, you know you have to start with the La, La Land Records complete collection of the original Star Trek music. Um, they've done many albums since. They did a 40th anniversary uh, poo poo platter, and that's what in Chinese restaurants they give you, where it has different things. It has the animated series, it has some of the great episodes, it, it has from the the video games. That's a beautiful um, piece of music. And did you go to that? Where they the orchestra played all that Star Trek music, the Czech orchestra a couple years ago for the 50th anniversary, they did this.
4: The one of Star Trek's. Yeah, the one yeah, that went to that. That was fun. It was fun. That was. It was, it was. I great. thought this is really a surreal way my life has evolved.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, this this is a piece of music. It's it's not my favorite, but every time I hear it, it's from Star Trek Three. It's when Sarek and Kirk, when they have their mind meld. Yeah,
4: it's called the mind metal. Thing. The mind metal. <laughs> okay, <the mind> mel- <laughs> <laughs> that piece
2: of music, oh, no. uh, uh, it kills me, like, every single time, and, and especially the end when he says, forgive me, it it is not here. Mm-hmm. You know, and that whole... that it, Every so, single that, time I hear yeah. that, I, I'm thinking about it now, I'm getting chills. I think that's an ocarina. Because I that... Ah, that, that. That, uh, the ocarina. It, it, there's something about that piece of music and that scene... That, I, I'm not a fan of Star Trek Three, but that's my favorite scene in the, in the whole movie. Just seeing Kirk, and and I think it's also not well directed, but no, I I, I love that whole moment. And for me, watching these two men come together and share a, a non-sexual intimate that's moment. That's when the that's Vulcans all about,
4: were played by Jews. That's how you cast Vulcans.
2: That's right. You're absolutely it just right. Doesn't
4: look right. Uh, they have you. because you take the square been a great white guy Vulcan
1: since. You, you, you know, you could argue it's, it's, how, Jolene how, how, was the only shiksa who ever got it.
4: Yeah, right. she was because she's nuts. Yeah, because so she was an honorary. I mean, Jew. this is no seriously. Jews are all nuts. So if you take someone who's nuts and say, "Don't play the emotion," who who is the only other shiksa who's a great half Vulcan? Kirstie Alley. Who's nuts? Yeah,
1: true. Right. <laughs> Good point.
4: Right. So if you take, I mean. If you take these square white guys and have them, they have no emotion to start with, and then they play no emotion. It's just a you double so negative. Right.
1: Well, it's exactly what Leonard Nimoy said. You know, it, it, it's not somebody who doesn't have emotion. Yeah. It's a person of great passion who's suppressing and their emotion.
4: All, and a lot of time, they're all Jews. and that's why Mark Leonard is so and great. Larksy and Celia Lasky is
2: amazing. Also, also, there's an ethnicity to Vulcans. And when got just When you cast a very white bread white dudes or white women as Vulcans, there's something that there is no, the ethnicity is sort of taken away. And we saw that, by the way, there was a lot of that beginning in Next Generation and Deep Space Nine when we saw other Vulcans. I mean, Robin Curtis replacing Kirstie Alley is a perfect example of that.
1: Yeah.
4: Yeah, they should have spent the money. That was like-
2: Well, you know, that's
1: not the story why I heard that she, why she's not coming back. (laughs) I and mean, I'm not going to say it. This right. I, I does not reflect well on people we like. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't
3: see this conversation going here at all. Um, I, Back to the music, stars. <laughs> I, I do want to say progress. one the composers um, are
4: mostly Jews, and the Vulcans are mostly Jews. That's what people need to know.
3: The, uh, no, the and
1: Vulcanism all is from uh, oh, Judaism,
3: yeah. and the yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Indeed. Star Trek: The Next Generation, Star Trek: First Contact. The score for that movie. Here's. Uh, it actually made an impression on me because it was the first time really that the Next Generation cast and the Next Generation Adventure truly felt like it had like a film score. You know something that was something that was big, um, and something that that felt like well, oh, because okay, it I'm, was I'm Jerry and not Dennis yeah. McCarthy,
4: one hundred percent.
1: Who's at home watching Fox I'll, News I'll apparently? Say, all right. Yeah.
4: One Jerry Goldsmith story, and then we should then I then we got to wrap up okay.
1: because yeah. who knew that an episode about the music of Star Trek would be so damn interesting?
4: Well, I'm interesting, that's why. Um, <laughs> Thanks for coming, Lucas. No, Jerry <laughs> I'll Gold- let the audience Jerry Gold- judge. Jerry Goldsmith was showing the beginning of insurrection to his agent, and his you know when data's running around, it was missing all these visual effects, and so his agent's watching the scene, and then finally the agent says, I- "I'm sorry, what's going on here?" And Jerry says, "I have no idea." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I got I got I got to thank Robert and um, Ashley and and Lucas for joining Darren and I here today on the show. This is a really fascinating episode and uh we could go on and on about the music and maybe we will again but for now i just want to remind you you can follow inglorious Experts on twitter and instagram at inglorious trek as well as on facebook where you can continue the conversation by telling us lucas kendall was the greatest guest ever this On this is show. what trump
4: has done to us you just you tell them and they believe it
1: <laughs> suggesting show topics and give us feedback on every episode in addition if you like what you hear Please rate us five stars at Apple Podcasts. You can hear new episodes of Inglorious Experts every Sunday wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery... Don't miss our all new podcast Disco Nights with host Chase Masterson and special guests every week with all new episodes premiering every Thursday night concurrent with the new episodes that will air in January on CBS All Access. And finally a very special thanks to Bill Ritter who probably found this episode particularly interesting and I'm sure has some great stories that I wish he would have shared with us about uh, music and, and and the sound mixes on the Star Trek uh, movies but we're going to get him on the show one of these days. We're going to break him down eventually. So thank you to Bill and everyone here at Electric including uh, Natalie for making the show possible. We couldn't do it without you. And uh, finally, on behalf of Darren, Robert, Lucas, Ashley, and myself, keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Engage.
5: There's a star